Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to listen to the best music podcast ever? ever. Available on six platforms, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Store, Spotify, and more. You're listening to the When Words Fail Music Speaks Podcast with James Cox and Blake Mosley. everybody, welcome to When the Words Fail Music Speaks Podcast. I am your host, a professional handicapped, and I know my voice sounds like Scooter from the Muppets, but we all love the Muppets, right? And on, We do. We do, we do, we certainly do. Uh, we do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so who you just heard is my co-host with the most, the loudest guy in the room only when he's playing the drums, and the podcast internet sensation, and quite possibly the sexiest voice on over the internet. My friend and yours, Rosalie. What's going on, man? Hello, good sir. So, um, how was uh, how was your weekend? Good. Uh, I was gonna say uh, before I we started this podcast that I've been to uh, Scratch and Spin. Have you ever heard of Scratch and Spin? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, so that's a a nerd uh, place where every nerd you, you know <laughs> unites and buys. Like they oh, got, that's the yeah the Instagram page. I yeah, follow, they, I forgot. I forgot. I followed them. That's right. They carry vinyl and stuff. Yeah, they have toys, uh, vinyl, and uh, you know, uh, yeah. pops and everything. So, mm-hmm. um, let me ask a question first. Who sure. do you prefer as a as a as a artist? Do you prefer the Rolling Stones or the Beatles? The Beatles. Oh, I love you for that. Yes, man. The Beatles are my my jam because my my every time I hear every time I hear the Beatles any song, it automatically reminds me of my aunt Molly. She passed away about I think like three or four years ago. She was really sweet. She loved the Beatles with all of her heart. So as I was looking through the vinyl collection that they had, I I I I um I was going to get some some other band, but. You know, I I paused and like I, I noticed the 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 cover for um for Rubber Soul and I'm like I gotta get this so I flipped through them and I got five Beatles albums or like four of them four of them I got Rubber Soul I got um let's see here I got Help I got The okay. Abbey Road and I got Sergeant Peppers so I'm gonna have cool, a very man. very good week. Of coming up, listening to these fantastic yeah. records. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. I'm yeah. I'm definitely uh, I'm right there with you. I love I love some Beatles records. Uh, as a lot of you, I've mentioned this before. I wasn't a huge Beatles fan until uh, until I met my wife, Abby, yeah, and uh, yeah, she's, she's been a long time huge Beatles fan. Yeah. Yeah, and does, uh, uh, does uh, like I said before, she's you know you talk about their last performance on the rooftop and oh, she yeah. gives up like she loves that band so much yeah. does uh, but, d- um, does she have a new yeah. record of them have any what does does she have any records of them uh yes she does oh, um, nice. she just got uh she actually got sergeant pepper uh for christmas yeah. um from our friend ann um 
But uh, yeah, we we still don't have a record player. We sold a record player last year yeah. in order to get another one, right? And still haven't bought <laughs> a new one. So yeah. maybe soon. And I, I've got quite a collection that I'm starting to stack up too, yeah. and I, I'm ready to listen to them. So maybe hey. here soon we can go ahead and get that. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen a 3D cover on a on a vinyl record before? No, I haven't. I haven't either until I went to um, scratchings. Okay, so there, uh, I'm I'm positive you heard of, of in this moment, right? Yes. And uh, they mm-hmm. have a record called I think it's called Mother, and I picked it up. I should know it, but uh, yeah. But their their album, their the, the the cover is like 3D. You know, you turn it one way and, and the colors change and the scenery change. <laughs> it's amazing. I'll have to show, show yeah. I'll I'll have to show you on a on a um possibly on a, on an upcoming video. For, for the team. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, like a like the five best coolest covers or something, you know, we could just do anything we want yeah. to, you know. So Yeah, that'd be cool. Um music related question. Did you watch the Super Bowl last night, the halftime show? I'm I, okay, so I, I don't have cable, but I did find it on on the internet and I think I missed over half of it because when I when I watched it it was um the the weekend singing his last song where they were all dressed up in bandages. So I don't know if that was right. the whole thing or, yeah. But uh, no. Well, uh, theoretically, theoretically, no. But yeah. But no. Yeah. I, <laughs> so we watched. We went over to uh, my sisters and Brian's last night, and uh, just to watch. We're, we're not big pro football people. Um, I do like to watch the Super Bowl. Um, there were four former Gamecocks that were playing in the Super Bowl. Uh, so that was cool to watch. But nice. Um. We, we, you know, I love to watch the halftime shows and really whoever is playing. Like, I, I love, I, I really don't care. Like, it, a good performer is a good performer. So, I wouldn't say I'm the biggest weekend fan. I right. do know some of his songs. He has some decent um, songs. I though. do. Yeah, he's, he's got good songs. Yeah. And the, you know, the song Starboy, he does a, uh, he did like a collaboration with Marvel a few years ago. Okay. Um, and actually put out a comic called Starboy, and I have a copy of it. Um, my friend Dalton gave it to me. Mm. Um, so I'm holding on to that. I, I, I can't wait to display that one somewhere, uh, yeah. maybe when I get the shed done. But um, it was it was really cool um, to uh, to see him perform. I think he did a great job performing. Right. I think that uh, he's he's a, an incredible artist. Uh, um, he did all that live. I have seen some Super Bowls where they, they uh, lip sync, and uh, – that is definitely not the case here. He okay. he sang every bit of that 100%. Nice. And um, I think he I think he did a wonderful job. Also, I found out that he didn't get paid anything for doing the Super Bowl, and he donated seven million dollars of his own money to put that performance together. What? That's something you don't, you, so, you don't uh, yeah. hear about, you know? Yeah. yeah. Hey, let me ask a question about the weekend. So when sure. he got his surgery, I call it surgery because I don't see anything wrong. Uh, so what was the whole uproar? Because I know in the video he looked uh, kind of weird, but that was for the video, right? I, like, or like, did he really I get surgery? He legit had. I thought he legit had this surgery done, right? Right. Everybody it turns did. out it's been part of a promotional thing for, I guess, something with. I, I'm not. Again, I don't follow him, so I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really big into. It. I don't know for sure what all is happening there, but. He uh, apparently that was some type of promotional thing. So he's been doing this thing 
where uh, he had his head kind of wrapped up in bandages. I figured that was probably from like some type of plastic surgery thing. Um, Then he had this ridiculous looking photo of him like with plastic surgery done. And uh, apparently it's all been a promotional thing. He didn't actually get anything done. Oh, what a troll. What a troll, dude. (laughs) That's like the greatest uh, um, Rick Roll thing I've I've ever heard. You know, actually. For real. You know. (laughs) So he rolled us all, the whole world. He rolled us all, man. Uh, but you know, he he uh, he incorporated that into his performance last night with everybody with the bandages. Yeah, yeah, I saw um, that part. I saw that part. But it was a great halftime show, and nice. for it to be a halftime show that didn't include anyone else except for him. You know, normally it'll be like an artist, and they yeah. bring in someone, and it's like a, a quick little thing, and then they go away. That was all 100% him, and the fact he didn't take a cent for it and paid out of his own pocket to get the thing done. I no. think it was. I think it was great. It's definitely one of my favorite Super Bowl halftime shows. Yeah, so it was wholesome, ever. right? No, yeah. No mm-hmm. booty shaking, no twerking, no you know, no no booty shaking no of any kind that I saw. Yeah, all except right. my own. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Uh, so episode 33, 34, We're on. I. Uh, I think it's just, I think this is 33. Okay, 33, yes. So uh, I asked you um, last time, you know, we always discuss on what what to do for next week and the next week. And you said, uh, yeah. Riot, the band. And I'm like, who? And you said, yeah. Uh, they, exactly. They, they, exactly. And we're going to go, uh, we're going to dive deep into Riot and their um, historic failure of a band. But, yeah. you know, I mean, I don't know if it's considered a failure because... From what I see, they're they're still in in uh in works, but it's not the original. They're band. still they're still rocking. Yeah, after all these years, <laughs> but from uh, I think it's they they started in 1989 or something. No, 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 no. Um, they started in 1977. So yeah, long time. So before we get into it, I actually have some uh some like this day in music. Yes. Um, facts for you in, in case anybody is interested. These are pretty cool. I love looking these things up. Um, but uh, so on February 8th of 1964, the Beatles, uh, on their first full day in New York, uh, the Beatles, minus George, who had a sore throat, went for a photo op uh, walk around uh, Central Park, and over 400 girl fans followed the Beatles, and extra police were called in to control them. You've seen pictures and videos of this. Uh, it was pure chaos, Beatlemania. Um, and, uh, it's, it's really cool to, because like, even then it sounds like 400 people is a lot, but like now you can see that happen and, uh, with anybody and it's just, uh, but it was, it, but it's a social media thing now that was just pure word of mouth that, uh, yeah. Beatles are, that were, that they were going to be there. Um, in 19, this day in 1975, Bob Dylan went to number one on the U S chart with his 15th studio album. In 1975, it was his 15th. That's crazy, man. Um, Blood on the Tracks, uh, his second U.S. number one album. The album has become one of Dylan's all-time best-selling studio releases with a double platinum U.S. certification Mm. um, by the Recording Industry uh, Association of America. Um, Mm. Let's see here. In 1981, R.E.M. made their first ever recording session uh, at Bombay Studios in Smyrna, Georgia. Uh, The tracks included Gardening at Night, Radio Free Europe and Don't Go Back to Rockville. Uh, in ni- <laughs> you're gonna love this one. In 1992, 
Right Said Fred, uh, <laughs> UK act, Right Said Fred, started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with I'm Too Sexy. Are you too uh, sexy for Which your is shirt? a number two hit for them in the U.K. Are you too you remember sexy? that song? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, that was um, everywhere. 2005, yeah, everywhere. It was yeah. everywhere back in the 90s. Right. Um, in 2005, Keith Knudsen, American uh, rock drummer, vocalist, and songwriter um, from the Doobie Brothers, uh, died of pneumonia at age 56. Mm. Um, the Doobie Brothers scored the 1979 U.S. number one single, What a Fool Believes, and the 1993 U.K. number seven single, Long Train Running. Um, he founded the band uh, Southern Pacific with fellow Doobie brother John McPhee. Um, and then in 2009, R&B singer Chris Brown, you remember when this happened, was questioned by police in Los Angeles over a complaint of assault. Over Rihanna. Uh, the 19-year-old yeah. at the time, um, he had pulled out a gun at his performance. <laughs> uh, oh, excuse me, not pulled out a gun. He, sorry, I read that wrong. Uh, he, pulled, he had pulled out of his performance at the Grammy Awards, um, as did his pop star girlfriend, Rihanna. Police oh, said yeah. that Brown yeah. argued. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. He had argued with an unidentified woman while sitting in a car, and then Brown had walked into a police station and was later released on $50,000 bail. Uh, Los Angeles police did not identify the woman who made the complaint against Chris Brown, as you know, went on to be a lot of crap with Rihanna and abuse scandals yeah. and things like that. Mm. Um, and then uh, finally in 2013, Axl Rose, everyone's favorite lead singer, hmm. uh, LA Superior Court Judge Charles Palmer threw out a claim by Axl Rose of fraud and misinterpretation, excuse me, misrepresentation against Guitar Hero 3. Uh, Rose claimed that this deal with the company to license the song Welcome to the Jungle for use in the game included a promise from Activision that no images of Slash would be used in the game. Later, both Maroon 5 singer Adam Levine and Gwen Stefani's band no doubt sued the company over their own portrayals in uh, Band Hero, a Guitar Hero series spinoff. Uh -huh. um, so it's so funny because you remember Guitar Hero, one of the main characters in the whole game was Slash. You could right. play a Slash. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> I forgot. That yeah, funny I, stuff, man. Yeah, so, I, I, yeah. I forgot that Welcome was uh, was one of their songs. I think, right? Yep. Because mm -hmm. because Welcome to, to the Jungle was going to be in Rock Band, but I I don't know what happened to that one. Maybe you know. Yeah, I know Axel it was in and, Guitar Hero Three. Yeah, and uh, apparently Axel was like, "You can use it, but just don't. You, you can't use." Slash's face anywhere. Yeah. I think this is still when tensions were very high. This is before the reunions and everything. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so interesting day for music. A lot happened on February eighth. Apparently, yeah. it's a it's a funny day. You mentioned the Doobie Brothers because uh, you 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 watch Office too, right? So oh yeah. So in the Absolutely. office in the office, they I guess they made a kind of nod to the Doobies because Michael said, "Yeah, man, I'm just smoking the Doobie with my brothers." I'm like, "Okay, I got I I, I, I see what you did there, Michael." <laughs> smoking the Doobie with my brothers, uh, man. Like I see you, you TV Michael. Gold. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I see you. Yeah, I see what you did there. So, uh, yeah. So the riot. Uh, I'm gonna let you start us off here. Yeah, so I uh, found this article. This comes from uh, Loudersounds.com. Uh, it's titled, The Story of Riot, the Unluckiest Band in the World. Uh -oh. um, <laughs> uh, in the late 70s, Riot uh, were the great white hopes of American rock. 
but that was before the public ignored them, their mm. label disowned them, and their singer quit. And then things got really bad. Wow. Uh-oh. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice picture of them. I guess that's the, I, I, I guess that's the original band from that 1977. That's the OG band right yeah. there. Yeah. Nice. They look like your typical 80s metal band. Yeah, with all the poofy hair and the long hair and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, cool. Okay. So, this is the story of heroic failure uh, of bad luck and lousy timing, misguided decisions, and clashing personalities of a band who fell foul of the machinations of the music industry. Uh, the the fickleness is that a word? I guess it is. The fickleness yeah. of of, yeah. of of record buying public and the dark side of rock and roll dream. The band in question is Riot, a bunch of New Yorkers whose determination was to succeed was ex- was exceeded only by their repeated failures to do so. Between the 1977 and 1981. They released a string of albums that should have turned in, into superstars. Uh, one which, 1981's Fire Down Under, remains one of the great hard rock records of all time. Yeah. Uh, they're feeded by everyone from Lars Ulrich, who has cited them as an influence, to Lady Gaga, oddly enough, uh, huh. who took inspiration from one of their anthems. They had the songs, the look, and the determination. Uh, what they didn't have was the breaks. The riot story has all the ingredients of a true heavy metal epic. The youthful dreams, the missed opportunities, the dogged perseverance, the repeated failures, the frustration, the farce, the bickering, the violence, the drugs, drugs. and the deaths of not yeah. one. Yep. Drugs, yep. Uh, sex, drug and sex, drugs and rock and roll. There it, you go, mean, buddy. It was all there. Yep. And then finally the deaths of not, but, not one, but three key members. Three, jeez. Okay. Three of them. Yeah. So, so this is Spinal Tap without the jokes. Uh, we all love Spinal Tap. Yeah. That's the greatest move of all time, mm-hmm. I think. One of them. Uh, mm-hmm. The story of Anvil without the happy ending. Have you thought it? Have you seen the story of Anvil? Yes, I have. That's I have great. seen. I have seen the story of Anvil, uh, which is, it's funny because this is a very similar story, but like, like they just said in this article, Anvil at least had somewhat of a happy ending yeah uh yeah. this is just this is just sad right it's just really yeah. sad so this is a cautionary tale to anyone dreaming of rock and roll fame and a reminder that for every band who make who makes it there are thousands who don't it's just mm-hmm. an amazing time amazing thing that anything ever happened says drummer sandy slavin who was a member of the band during the eight during, during the early eighties heyday? When I played with Ace Freely, we'd be we be sitting on the bus, and everybody would be telling you uh, their music, their amazing business horror stories. My item was always just like a little bit more horrifying. To be successful, uh, you had to be a great performer. Play the game and work with the press, says Billy Arnell, who co-managed the band in the late 70s and early 80s. Riot wasn't that great at that stuff. Uh, they didn't understand the, that being in the music business and multi-billion dollar industry uh, t- uh, took more than they think, uh, took more than thinking like a Brooklyn kid. Uh, former guitarist Ricky Ventura 
a man who lived through the worst part of the story, put it more bluntly, talk about a band with bad luck. Wow, that's a really <laughs> interesting. Yeah. If one man was the drive force behind Riot, <clears throat> excuse me, behind Riot, it was guitarist Mark Reel, a tall, skinny, monstrous fanatic with thinning hair, which he later covered with a series of wigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the unassuming but quietly ambitious Reel uh, would be the only constant member throughout the band's history. That is true. It was Reel who founded the band in this native Brooklyn, uh, in his native Brooklyn, in the in the summer of 1975, with bassist Phil Feet drummer Peter Batelli and vocalist Guy uh, Speranza. Uh, a wiry Italian-American with a striking Afro-style hairdo, Speranza looked like uh, looked at, at first glance like the uh, archetypal 70s rock god in waiting. Um, but his unobtrusive manner suggested that he wasn't necessarily cut out for a lock, uh, life in rock and roll. Mark told me that he had to talk to Guy and to join, had to talk Guy into joining the band recalls future drummer Slavin. He was singing with a top 40 band in Brooklyn. Um, he, could, he could either take it or leave it. Guy was very adaptable. He was like a blank slate. When he joined Riot, he became the singer of Riot. Whoever he was hanging out with, that's who Guy was going to be. Mm. And like Speranza, Real had served time in several going-nowhere teenage bands, serving up Humble Pie, Fog Hat covers to, be, uh, to, the, to his drunken school friends at backyard parties. But Riot were different. Real and Speranza were writing their own material for starters. They knew they had more to offer. They certainly hoped they had more to gain. And that taste of what was to come, their timing was atrocious. <laughs> atrocious. Uh, <laughs> New York in the mid 70s was a grip of disco fever, a glitter ball, Hindu, Hinduism, and white power powder were the order of the day. White girl, you know, mm. booger sugar stuff, you know, on a, <laughs> on a fancy yeah. 70s terms. <laughs> so elsewhere, uh, the burgundine punk scene has taken root at infamous d- dive CBGBs. Spearheaded yeah. by, the, by the likes of the Ramones, Patti Smith, and television, uh, at the time in the Big Apple, if you were a rock band, if it weren't called Led Zeppelin, uh, you would be faced struggle without getting noticed. So if you, yeah, I mean, because Led Zeppelin overtook that whole whole genre. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. They were faced with. Uh, they came out in a time that was straight. It was a struggle to yeah. be if uh, to be a rock band. Yeah, right. uh, punk bands were exploding. Yes. Oh my. We've God. talked about that before yeah. in our punk episode. It's just that this time frame, with the help of little like little uh clubs like cbgb's that just skyrocketed all these bands to superstardom right and almost instantly and, and you didn't see- even have to be that good that's the most sickening part about <laughs> it for a lot of these guys yeah. is they were like punk bands suck <laughs> but, but they but they hit it off you know because uh it seemed to me yeah. like back in the 70s and 80s and when when there's new new genre of music coming out they they, they forget about the about the band before them and just focus on the yeah. um, focus on the new stuff. It seems like you know from from what we're reading here. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. But, so. Um, you want me to tell you this one? Yeah. Uh, Riot. Uh, but what Riot had, what what most other rock and roll hopefuls didn't, uh, was a go-getting management team in the shape of Billy Arnell and Steve Loeb. Arnell was a chain-smoking hipster with a machine gun repartee 
uh, who wouldn't have seemed out of place if in the creative department of a Mad Men-style ad agency. The more laid-back Loeb was one part hippie, one part hustler. Um, as he, as, as a kid, he had run around with the future Kiss guitarist, a free, Ace Freely. That's pretty cool. Over the next decade, Arnell and Loeb would play a pivotal role in Riot's career, sometimes for the good of it, sometimes not. Arnell had ca- uh, excuse me, carved out of a career-writing jingles, jingles for an ad company before teaming up with Loeb to buy studio Green Street in Manhattan's Soho District. They were looking for a band to launch their new label, Firesign Records. Initially, they were keen to sign something edgy, a punk or a new wave band. Again, this is the time frame we're looking at. Um, but they stumbled across Riot playing in a club in the summer of 1976. They instantly saw something in the fledging outfit. They sounded great, looked good, and had some fantastic material in which they did. Holy crap, because um, cause I just heard her. Mm-hmm. Just before this podcast, I listened to Thunderstill, which came out in 1988. And it sounded mm-hmm. like, a, like an early... Um, well, I don't know about early, but it sounds like more like an Iron Man and Jesus Priest kind of kind of vibe. They were really, really good. Right. You know, so. Yeah, they yeah. are. Um, uh, so they sounded great, look good, and have some fantastic material, says Billy Arnell today. Uh, before pausing into, before pausing to mutter, little did we know what was coming. In late 76, Riot entered Green Street with Arnell and Loeb to record their debut album, Rock City, which is great. As well as releasing their own uh, label, um, the two managers opted to produce the record themselves. Uh, Sowing the the seeds of a clash of interests that would impact on the band further down the line. The album took seven long months to produce, and it was a disjointed affair. Uh, th- though it contain, th- though it did contain a trio of cult classics in the shape of Warrior, uh, Tokyo Rose, and the title track. It also introduced the band's mascot, Tior, a ludicrous, axe-wielding, half-human, <laughs> half-seal <laughs> hybrid. Well, that's, I don't know what that would look it- like. Uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, Half the old hybrid that prompted as much derision as it did admiration, not mm. least among the band themselves. So half half mm. seal, half human, and holding an axe, yeah. holding a ludicrous axe. I gotta see this. It's, I, I just, it's strange. Yeah, I gotta look it up after it, we do. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Hmm. Um, released in late 1977, Rock City found little favor in a year dominated by Fleetwood Mac mm. and Donna Summer, mm-hmm. um, and it sank without a trace uh, in America. Though it was, it caused quite a stir in Japan, and you see that a lot. Yeah, I, there's yeah. a lot of bands that don't have a lot of success in the U.S. They could be a U.S. band. They don't see a lot of success here, but in foreign countries, they tend to be very popular. Japan being one of those. Right. Japan. You see a lot of bands that even Anvil, I think that was the same thing with them. They had barely any success in the U.S., yeah. notarized by a lot of bands as an influence, but just didn't have a lot of commercial success. Right. But in Japan, they were huge, like massive. Right. It's it's weird. I, I don't I don't get it. That reminds me of um the name slipped me. Who played Michael Nine in Knight Rider? Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
David. David Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff yeah. was I. He man, he's a he's a he's a like an icon, like a god to like the German yeah. German fans because he you know according to them he can sing which I don't know I'm still kind of debating. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like 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 you said, like if uh, I mean like if punks punk scene like some of the ba- some of the bands go over to Japan to get more notoriety. And then possibly come back to the U.S. and just you know branch out from there. It seems like, yeah. So, you know, so un, un, un undaunted, the band started work work on the follow up. Uh, Narita uh, produced mm-hmm. once again by Arnell and Loeb at Green Street. Green Street. It was a vast improvement. Uh, the band sounded indefinitely more confident. And it housed another song in the shape of future live stable road racing. Uh, but by now, a right was even more out of step with everything going on around them in New York. Mm. And the spotlight has been dragged to the opposite coast, uh, where it seamlessly inclined with the band Van Halen. Uh, where, where they were rapidly making a name for themselves. Yeah, I, I mean, Van mm-hmm. Halen is it, dude. Van Halen just Yeah, again, stole yeah. The, just completely stole the spotlight. Yeah, so that's... Couldn't even give them a chance. Yeah, so that's like four bands. You got Leslie Flynn, Fleetwood Mac, Dinosaur, and now it's Van Halen. So that's four yeah. times, and, me, you know. But what I will say about that album, Narita... There's a really good cover of Born to be Wild in our research for this that I discovered that they do on that album. Oh, it's, nice. it's actually very good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got to listen to it. So, yeah. uh, Narita, named after the main international airport in Tokyo and feature mm-hmm. and featuring their man seal mascot, Dior, yeah. uh, dressed as a sumo wrestler. Oh, my God. Sumo yeah. wrestler. Jeez, okay. Uh, was released in June 1979, but only in Japan. Once again, America wanted nothing to do with Riot. Oh, that's Aww. sad. That is sad. That's sad. Because when you <laughs> seek out your dream and just, uh, like, when a whole country doesn't want to, you know, deal with you, that's kind of a major upsetting. Yeah, it uh, sucks. Yeah, upsetting time. So, do you want to take this one? Yeah, uh, but by the time of their second album, Riot had already gone through several uh, of the lineup changes that would define their career. Original bassist Bill Feet had been replaced by Jimmy Iommi uh, during sessions for the day the debut album, while second guitarist L.A. Cavaris had quiet uh, had quit shortly afterwards with Rick Ventura filling in his shoes, um, filling his shoes. Uh, it was it was Mark's band, said Ventura. He started it. Sometimes we had some conflicts because we wanted the band to be a certain way. Now, between finishing Narita and releasing it, they'd go, they'd get a new drummer, uh, New Jersey native Sandy Slavin. Excuse me. Um, I'd never heard of Riot, admit Slavin today. Uh, oh. <laughs> Mark called me and said his band had just got rid of their rhythm section. Uh, I thought these guys are idiots. <laughs> they've got a record. Wow. Uh, they've got a record out. Uh, why in the world would you break up your band? Um, but Mark seemed real nice. Uh, we were both big fans of Montrose. Montrose. Um, but they were, they, yeah. Um, they were, uh, but they were, they were, excuse me, but there were bigger problems than a revolving door membership. 
Uh, Riot were struggling with a break in their home country, and Arnell and Loeb uh, re- uh, realized they needed help to give their charges a leg up. Uh, they opted to go into partnership with Fred Heller, a powerful music business figure who had represented Ian Hunter and Lou Reed. Lou Reed. All right. Yeah. yeah. Infamous Lou Reed. Yeah. So Fred made a huge difference because he could on get a he could get on the phone with the record label executives, explained Arnell. Uh, Freddie knew how to how to make people dance. Okay, uh, Heller made yeah. a, his presence felt immediately, uh, backing a deal with Capitol Records for the U.S. release of Narita, and wrangling a tour support with ACDC in Texas. Nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, after three years of having the door slammed in their faces, Riot f- figured that they were on the verge of stepping into the big time. I'm, I'm, mm. I, man, ACDC, man, if you you know go with them, you're... What a tour. Yeah. For real. Yeah, because that's one of the biggest bands of all time. Yeah. I think it's the biggest band of all time, really. But that's my you know, opinion. Definitely. Uh, so uh, there were the first arena shows up. Oh, okay. There were, they were the first arena show any of us have done, recall Slavin. Uh, we were like, yeah, the, we, we're rock stars now. Uh, Billy and Steve were like, uh, what color Mercedes do you want? <laughs> we acted like idiots <laughs> and busted up some hotel rooms. Um, we went from zero to a thousand. Yeah, because uh, when you tour with the biggest band in the world, such as ACDC, you're like, okay, so so things are looking up now. Here we go, you know. And they get yeah, it's get it's all starry eyed and everything. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm just like you said, it's, it's, it's exciting. So yeah, uh, the reality was that Riot were in struggling, were were still struggling to make their mark. A situation which led to some drastic brainstorming on the part of Arnold and Loeb. In late night in late seventy nine, uh, they called a meeting with the band, uh, Slavin. They said, uh, "There is no market for hard rock. You need to change your whole sound, get skinny ties, and go new wave." Uh, we were young <laughs> and full of uh, piss and vinegar. Uh, we said, "F this crap." <laughs> so I mean, yeah, kind of, but. I guess they were that they they were true to their sound, you know. So yeah, they, 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 they were they were metalheads at 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 heart. Right. Yes. Stuck yes. to it. They didn't give in. Yeah. Um, the prospect uh, prospect of a potentially disastrous career change averted. Riot found their luck temporarily changing thanks to the support of taste making British DJ Neil K. Um, the band had gained a sizable following in the UK. And in February of 1980, they were offered a slot supporting Sammy Hagar on his British tour. Hmm. It was such a success that a few months later, they were back, having a bag, having bagged a spot at the inaugural Monsters of Rock Festival. Yes. Uh, at Donington, uh, and that's so cool. That's a that's a good festival. Yeah. Uh, though not before yet another lineup change uh, with bassist Kit Lemming uh, joining on the bass. Uh, it rained and there was mud everywhere. Recalls yeah. Lemming with a laugh. <laughs> I went into the audience to check out the band and got pelted by lumps of turf. Uh, Riot returned home in a triumphant mood. They started work. Uh, they started work on their third album, Fire Down Under, with the wind in their sails. Little did they know that the ship was about to behold 
below the waterline. Mm. And and if you go to the uh, to the site where louder.com, I'm I'm going to put the link in the description. Uh, you can see the yeah. the bill for Monsters Rock. They toured. They they did a. They were sharing the same things with Rainbow, uh, led by mm-hmm. um, uh, Blackmore and Coffee Powell and Glover, and they did, and and uh, Judas Priest, Scorpion, and uh, Saxon, and it, mm. with all the with all that band, it's like you, you know there's nowhere to go up because because we were touring with these with these bands, everybody knows us now, you know. So yeah, you know. those are those are huge heavy metal acts yeah. that you're that you're touring with, you're opening for. And, uh, it, I mean, it's, it seems like it's it's finally happening. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, looking back on Fire Down Under today, uh, guitarist Ricky Ventura recalls a band putting uh, their struggles behind them. It was one of those moments, yeah. He says, uh, where the chemistry was right, the attitude was good, and everybody was playing great. It all came together. Mark Real and Guy... Uh, I can't pronounce that. Speranza? I believe that's how it's pronounced. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, Mark mm-hmm. Real and Guy Speranza wrote together um, with Ventura bringing in uh, fully assembled songs of his, oh, his own. Uh, everybody chipped in with our, uh, with arrangements. Um, and after half a decade of turmoil, the band was finally pulling in the, the same direction. Uh, we had we had reached a point where the band was tight, says Billy Arnell. Uh, they started to get an artistic identity as producers. Uh, Steve, I really can't f this up. Yeah. So. Uh, Fire Down understands as the high point of Riot's career and a landmark early 1980s hard rock record, bridging the gap between Reel's beloved Montrose uh, and the. Excuse me. The nascent trash, uh, trash, thrash scene uh, that would emerge a few years later. It balanced its melodic chops with a tight energy and walked a lyrical tightrope uh, between fantasy and gonzo rock and roll. Its undoubted highlight was an anthemic uh, opener, "Swords and Tequila," yes. a song that has been rightly featured as a uh, classic by Iron Maiden, Steve Harris, and Metallica's Lars Ulrich. Mm. Surprisingly. It also influenced other unli- another unlikely musician. Listen to the beginning of Swords and Tequila, then listen to Lady Gaga's track, Electric Chapel, says Sandy oh. Clapp. The guitar intro uh, on that is so effing close, it's huh. unbelievable. Uh. Not just the notes, but also the sound. Uh, she's really into 80s rock, right? Uh, after two false starts, Riot had uh, at last made their masterpiece, the album that would book their place at rock's top table. At least that's what should have happened. Instead, Capitol refused to release it. Mm. How sad, man. Yeah. How sad. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not familiar with that Lady Gaga track. I'm not either. Yeah. I'm I'm not even familiar with Riot's music, but I <laughs> I'm gonna compare the two once we get off of here. I'm gonna yeah. go back and I'm gonna listen to that and uh yeah. really compare them. It seems now that more and more artists today is is referring back to uh eighties music. You know, '80s metal with the like, yeah. Because I, I think because Gaga is a, such a big fan of metal. I mean, she she did a she did I think she did a one of the uh, shows with, with Metallica. You know, she did a collaboration with them. Yeah. So I guess she's you know, but it but it's so great that to, to hear that it, that some '80s 
you know, influences are coming back now, you know. Yeah. That's 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 why I really like cause I love the 80s metal, you know, music. Uh, I just listened to a podcast about uh like a two-part podcast about Lady Gaga's music career up, up to this point. Right. Um it's it's a it's a podcast called Page 7. Um they do like different types of episodes. Uh they, you know, but they have one called a uh, um Oh man, what's it called? Uh, pop history. It's just called pop history. Okay. And uh, they may do it about a musician. They may do it about an actor, whatever. Um, but uh, they did want to leg Lady Gaga, and she's just she puts a, for a pop musician. She puts a lot of effort into her own stuff. A lot of times, these pop musicians, you don't see them. Uh, they just they're just kind of the poster child, right? So it's there's really someone else writing the songs. There's really someone else doing all this. They're just the ones that perform it and promote it right right but lady gaga is very involved and she's influenced by so many different people i mean she gets her name from a queen song that should tell you something right yeah yeah it's you a lot of but, things yeah. yeah so the official line that was labeled uh that was the label deemed it uh commercially un unacceptable too heavy for the climate in 1981 yeah, okay mm. uh but Slavin suggests the real reason was uh, down to a fail power played by uh, Arnell and, and Loeb. Uh, there was a mm. there was a song called by Rick called "You're All I Needed Tonight." Uh, that our A and R guy was uh, liked. That our A and R guy liked, so he, he liked the song "You're All I Needed Tonight." Yeah. Uh, he said it was a big hit and took it to tape down to the executives in LA and played it to them. Uh, then Billy and Steve um, uh, don't put the song on the album, or didn't put the song on the album. It was their way of yeah. to put the A and R guy in his place. So of course mm. the A R the A and R guy looks like an idiot. Uh, that's when the label <laughs> decided to uh, that it was commercially unacceptable. Okay, so hmm, that's Oof. that's kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, so whatever the reason, the the knockback was this the disastrous for Riot. Uh, Arnold decided to go toe to toe with the label and get the fan base involved. Uh, so he sent out a postcard to all of their fans and on their mailing list, invoked the axe wielding seal head and mascot TR uh, as the as, as held held captive on on in the ivory tower the maniacal company executive by the insane yeah so he was yeah it's the, the biggest middle finger to their to their own record label right which is a uh, <laughs> kind of a no no back then because you know uh so uh, he worked up the petition to get the album released signed by fans and such high profile supporters as Iron Maiden uh mm. the cause was picked up by British music press, if not their American counterparts. Rather than having a the desired effect, the campaign only made things worse. Oh no. Uh, not only yeah. did the Capitol refuse the release album, uh, they weren't inclined to let right go. Okay, so they will go. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, while things hung in limbo, uh, riot funds dried up. Uh, cracks were going through between co the co-managers and the members of the band who weren't real and and, and guy. Um, the yeah. band's money was cut off, says Slobman, uh, still fuming at the memory. 
I had to give up my apartment in New York, move back to New Jersey, and it was effed. Uh, Billy, <laughs> Billy and Steve had kept the money uh, from the deal with Capital, so they so they could have kept us going. Uh, then they sold it to Electra, you know, the other label, uh, and yeah. they sold the effing record Fire Down Under twice. So, yeah, so who knows? So, yeah. Hmm. Um, it was Electra Records fired up by the enthusiasm of hotshot AR man Tom Zutat, uh, who proved to be Riot Saviors. The new label helped uh, extricate Riot from their capital deal and finally released Fire Down Under. Uh, and then, to the relief of the band, it was a, it was a, a success, selling more than its two predecessors combined. And it would eventually sell more than five hundred thousand copies in the U.S. That's actually pretty. That's actually pretty that's good. Bad, yeah. um, yet Riot's uh, capacity for snatching defeat from the jaws of victory was unmatched, and once again, their own world was about to come crashing down around them. In November of 1981, while supporting Grand Funk Railroad, Guy Speranza, whose nickname was Buddy, dropped a bombshell. Uh, Guy turns to me and Mark and starts talking in third person. Recalls mm-hmm. Slavin. He says, "Hey, you guys." Buddy's packing it in. We thought he was joking, so we didn't say anything. Then we got back to the hotel room, and he says, I'm really quitting. He announces that he, he's getting married, and his wife-to-be doesn't like rock and roll. Uh, in a career defined by terrible timing, this was the worst timing of all. The band had finally made their breakthrough, and now their front man was walking away for it uh, from it for love. So he had his own Yoko Ono. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. Um, today, everyone has a different take on Speranza's departure. Bassist Kip Lemming suggests that the singer was unhappy and the idea of, quote, putting on leather pants and sparkly clothes, it wasn't about music. Uh, Sandy Slavin says the singer was fed up with Billy Arnell and Steve Loeb and he was tired of touring and not getting any reimbursement. Unsurprisingly, Arnell himself has a different take on the matter. Quote, uh, Guy was a very mellow, gentle person, he says. Uh, for a front man, he wasn't very confident. He was a great writer, and he was very in, uh, identifiable. But it takes more than that. Whatever the reason, Speranza had, uh, had made up his mind. He played his last show with Riot on December 22nd in 1981, the second of two sold-out shows supporting Rush at the Meadowlands Center in Rutherford, New Jersey. Wow, I mean, just... Mm. Look at the look at who these guys toured with. Yeah. And they didn't get more recognition. Rush, Grand Funk Railroad, ACDC, Iron Maiden. Yeah. I mean, these, these, are, these are big name acts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, mm. it's just sad. Um, I have a picture of Guy from that show, says Sandy. He has his coat over his shoulder. He's walking out of the dressing room, and that's the last time we ever saw or talked to him. He was just glad to be gone. Speranza left the music business and became, of all things, a pest controller. <laughs> um, one apocryphal story uh, as has Lars Ulrich, a Riot fan, calling a, best, a pest control company to sort out an infestation of rats in his New York apartment, and he was shocked when it was Guy Speranza who knocked on the front door. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. <laughs> Years of struggle uh, accumulating with the loss of a key member would have the, been the fatal body blow for most, for most men's, but for Mark Real, there was no question after stopping all of his bands had been through, which is, you know, true because he wants to see it through. Uh, yeah. Right, returned to New York. Yeah, yeah. right, returned to New York 
bloody but not broken. Uh, they had a few low-key auditions and quickly found replacement for for Guy in the shape of Rhett Forrester, uh, the band, a band leader's son from New Jersey. Uh, Forrester has chiseled features, blonde hair, and cocky style development in an assortment of cover bands. With their new singer on board, uh, the band entered the studio and recorded the fourth album, Restless Breed, a tougher, more uh, metal-centric record than uh, President in Quiet Riots, uh, sonically similar, um, though much more successful uh, metal health by almost a year. Mm. Uh, not having Guy was, was bad enough, uh, but when Rick, but, but with Rhett, it was always about putting on a show so it didn't feel genuine. Mm. It soon, yeah, it's got to be genuine. Yeah. It soon became more apparent that Forrester was a volatile and insecure character. He became, he became prone to picking fights. Uh, worse, he was, uh, he was unreliable as the band found out on their first tour with him. Uh, so when, they, when, when we got to Nashville... And we heard that Red was going to make a later plane ride, uh, which has always, which is always a bad sign. We call Slavin. Mm. Uh, suddenly, there's a call for our tour manager. He comes back and says, "Fellas, the tour is over. Red's in the hospital." Uh, it transpired that Forrester had attended the Queen show at Madison Square Garden and ingested something after the show that saw him in the hospital for four days. Uh, that's not good. No. So, uh, Forrester got his act together and made another album, uh, uh, The Underwhelming Born in America, but the band was losing their way, and so were the managers. Uh, producing the album, uh, Loeb would go into the studio during the day and Arnell at night. The latter accompanied by two bodyguards for protection. Uh, wow. Yeah. By this time, Arnell had had enough. Uh, he quit the management team, cutting, their, cutting his losses. Uh, today, he makes a successful living in the computer industry uh, while writing and producing music on the side. Now flying solo, Loeb uh, tried, to make, tried to take Born in America to other labels. Uh, following a dispute with Electra, but no one was interested. And then, uh, Steve had the balls to turn up at Electra with the album as if nothing happened, says, says Slobbin. <laughs> <laughs> and called, and uh, they called security and threw him out of the office. Wow. So. Wow. Talk about, talk about a hard time, right? Uh, yeah, for real. Rick Ventura, who founded, who, who found it hard to disguise his lack of enthusiasm, was pushed out of the band. Uh, they embarked on one more tour supporting Kiss. Crap. That's wow. a bad man. Yeah. Uh, before deciding to call a day, uh, there's one song uh, show was at La Armour's Club in Queens in May 1984. That was a show I put together, said Slavin Wiley. Uh, we made more money on that date than we did the whole kiss tour wow wow yeah <laughs> that's yeah that's um, um yeah go ahead yeah 
And even if what uh, passed as their glory days were over, Riot itself weren't. Mark Real relocated to San Antonio and briefly formed a new band, uh, Narita, named after Riot's second album, before resurrecting his old band's moniker. Um, he would record a, uh, another 10 albums with a series of different Riot lineups, though none of them came close to Fire Down Under, um, and one of which, the horn-driven privilege of power, was an unmitigated experimental disaster. <laughs> uh, Riot's run of bad luck didn't stop with their initial split. On January 2nd of 1994, Rhett Forrester was shot and killed during a carjacking in Atlanta, sadly. Mm, uh, the police were... Uh, the police guess he was... Uh, reaching for something in the glove box and whoever was standing outside the car probably uh, selling him something thought he was going for a gun and shot him in the back, said Sandy Slavin. Uh, Rhett then drives the car away and crashes it into a police car. That's Rhett. Wow. Uh, on November 8th of 2003, Guy Speranza passed away after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. In an interview, Mark Real revealed that his wife believed this was related to the chemicals he handled every, every day for the 20 years in his job as a pest controller. Yeah. Uh, then, on January 25th of 2012, Mark Real died of the complications from Crohn's disease, the crippling stomach ailment that had been battling he had been battling for most of his life. He was still flying the right flag until his il his illness got too bad for him to continue. Mm. A week before Real died, Rick Ventura turned up to jam with the current riot lineup in New York. I plan on going down and uh, on going down and surprising Mark, he says, but he was too sick to play. I miss Mark, and I miss Guy too. It's a stretch to to say that Riot were cursed, but they seemingly spent their career caught in a perfect storm of misfortune, apathy, and bad timing. Mm -hmm. But while theirs was a career template not to follow, they made a lot of mis they made a lot of mistakes so that other bands didn't have to. It's to their credit, and especially to Mark Real's credit that they persevered uh, in the face of it all. 31 years after their masterpiece, Fire Down Under, uh, the surviving parties have, bit have bittersweet memories of Riot. The, the quote, uh, the thing I remember about Riot, about Riot is the laughing, says Sandy Slavin. We always had a lot of fun. The band had its place in history, and it seems we've influenced a lot of people, says Rick Ventura. I'm really proud of that. I guess for a time, adds Kip Flem uh, Lemming, we were the biggest small band in the entire world. I mean, so yeah, that's yeah. that's it, man. Riot. Uh, you talk about a band that had been through it. I mean, my God, they yeah. they they tried to stick it out as long as they could. So much misfortune with that band. Um, but if there's anything you can take away from this, it's just the pursuit of not giving up. Right. Um, exactly. It, it just keep going. Like you don't have to be in a band to to acknowledge this. Like you can you can use this in your everyday. You know, we one of our key things here on the show is to uh, how can music help with your depression, with your anxiety, whatever, um, with the 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 feeling of wanting to give up. Just don't, just push right. through. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they might not have had the success that they wanted, but there's a lot of people that credit Riot as being heavy influencers of their own bands and to their own successes, and that's something that you can uh, you can really take to heart. That's 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 an incredible feat. Right, and uh, and 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 it's something to say that Riot is still uh, playing music now uh, under the name yeah. Riot Five. Um, Riot yeah. B as you know five, as a fifth you know version mm -hmm. of this uh, band. So uh, just yeah. real quick, uh, the current members now are Mike Flint, lead guitar, Don Van Savern, uh, bass guitar, Todd Michael Hall, lead vocals, 
Uh, Frank. What's that? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Frank Giller. Sorry, I, my my thing cut out for a second. Oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> okay, so we got Frank Gillerst played the drums, Nick Lee as the rhythm guitarist, and they had a plethora of uh, of uh, albums. So let me go through that real fast. We got Rock City, mm-hmm. your first album in 1977, Narita in uh, 1979, Fire Down Under in 81, Wrestles Breed in 82, Born in America in 83, Thunderstill, great album, 88, The mm-hmm. Privilege of Power in 90, A Nightbreaker in 93, The Brethren of the Lost of the Longhouse in 95, Irish Einish Moore in 98, Sons of Society in 99, Third Storm in twenty in two thousand two, Army One in two in uh, two thousand six, Immortal Soul in two thousand and eleven, Unleash the Fire in two thousand fourteen, and the last album to date is Armor of Light in two two thousand and eighteen. Mm. So, no matter yeah. what you have going on in your life, you know it will get better. Uh, you know they're still rocking out hardcore. Um, you can always go to their um, uh, website, which is uh com. you'll find you know a lot of great stuff so check it out it's good stuff yeah absolutely and i'll uh i'll end us here on uh we'll close out this episode with an inspirational music quote this is something i think would be cool to kind of do um uh this this comes from victor hugo music expresses that which cannot be said and on which it is impossible to be silent Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So huh, thank you for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So uh, like before, you can get us on Apple Podcasts and many more. Uh, you can go to our, our, our website, www.whenwordsfilmmusicspeaks.com and listen to all of our past episodes, including this one. Um, yeah. And just, yeah. So thank you all for listening. And until next time, see ya. See you guys. You've been listening to the When Words Fail Music Speaks podcast. Stay tuned for more and thank you for listening.